0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Colembrough well, Councillor Judy Partridge is uh, stirring the pot a little bit about what's happening with the ward boundary issue now. We told you, of course, that the dates have been set for the uh, Ontario Municipal Board hearing about Hamilton's ward boundaries, uh, something the council should have dealt with many years ago, and uh, they kind of sort of did when they came up with their own ideas. And uh, At least one citizen, uh, I'm sure there are many others involved in this, Uh, spoke out against this, and, of course, Mark Richardson was on the program last week. He's the one who filed the uh, petition with the OMB. But uh, is this stirring the pot? Is it fear-mongering? Should we be fearful that ward boundaries could change the way that the city is governed, that uh, some areas are going to get shortchanged? Some would suggest that we need to change the boundaries to avoid that sort of thing. Uh, They'll have that debate, obviously, at the OMB later on, but clearly it's uh, starting to show its head again around the Hamilton area. Joining us to talk about this is Larry DeAnne, former mayor of the city of Hamilton, and uh, always a welcome guest on the program. Good morning, Larry. How are you doing today?
1: Good morning, Bill. I'm fine. And yes, the debate rages on, even on social media.
0: Well, yeah, back and forth uh, after the uh, the piece Andrew Dressel wrote about this today. We've been talking about it over the last few weeks on this program as well. Uh, first of all, your 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 comments about uh, Councillor Partridge's uh, and, and Councillor Pursuit the two Flamborough councillors uh, assertion that uh, that if we were to go with either one of these suggestions uh, about changing ward boundaries, that would be a bad thing?
1: Well, so it would have implications. Whether bad or good, um, um, you know, is, is something we can talk about. But certainly this is an important topic. It's not being talked about. It's not really on the radar uh, of most Hamiltonians, people that I talk to, certainly when they mention municipal issues, mention other things other than ward boundary representation. It's a little bit of inside baseball for most people, but it does have significant uh, implications, or it can have significant implications, not only to how we are governed as a municipality, who represents us as a municipality, but also some tax implications around services, levels of service, and who pays for what. And so it's something that we really need to pay attention to and connect those dots uh, in order to have a meaningful debate. And right now, I don't think uh, there has been one.
0: Well, let's talk about some of the implications, or uh, and some would suggest, Larry, perceived implications.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, perceived implications as well, because I've, I've always maintained, quite frankly, that how you're elected, um, that is, you know, the ward system that elects councillors, and what your responsibilities are as a councillor are two different things. And the last thing you want to do is cement in people's minds that those who elect you are your only responsibility as a councillor. In fact, you have pan-municipal responsibilities, board of directors kind of uh, responsibilities that transcend all the wards in the city, and so to make um, uh, you know a, a case and the only case for the representation of the people who elect you to the table, um, I think gives short shrift to the larger purpose that councillors should have.
0: All right, and and that's an argument that we heard uh, post or pre amalgamation, really. And even during the process, and of course, you know, they, we kicked this around as a city council for a number of years, and then finally the government came in and opposed the regional government and, and the amalgamated city. I mean, so Hamilton is twice blessed or twice cursed, I guess, depending on your point of view when it comes to how the province has dealt with us. But, but when are we going to get over this us-versus-them idea between the suburbs and, and the inner city?
1: Well, absolutely, and, and that is very divisive, and, uh, and I know um, I personally worked very hard. Uh, when I was involved uh, politically to take positions even before I became mayor and therefore it was my responsibility to look after uh, the whole municipality. But even when I was a councillor, to take positions that advance the cause for the whole city. And I know you did the same, Bill, uh, lots of times when there was crossover interest in, in uh, issues that, uh, uh, that had nothing to do with our ward, and that's the way it should be. Uh, and, and, unfortunately, by stoking these fires right now, these flames right now, uh, is, is reviving, I fear. And Councillor Partridge made that point in the, in the paper this morning, as did Councillor Pasuda. It may be reviving what people seem to think is a dead issue, and that is the angst that uh, former municipalities uh, uh, felt when, uh, when they were forced to amalgamate. Now, I happen to think that, that there's great blessings and, and, and we can point to some real strengths uh, and, uh, and some real uh, good things happened as a result of amalgamation, but one of them was not the democratic will of those lower-tier communities that didn't want to join this union unwillingly. Um, but rather would have preferred a different model.
0: Yeah, and then, listen, that's the history of this thing. And, and you know, pre-amalgamation, you were a member of Stony Creek Council. Right. I was on Hamilton Council. And, and you and I talked about this on a number of occasions. I can remember going out to Stony Creek City Hall and talking with you and the other councillors, and, uh, you didn't think amalgamation was the greatest idea. You didn't think it was that great for Stony Creek. Uh, Murray Ferguson in Ancaster, Bob Wade in Ancaster, and, and Glenn Etherington in Glenbrook. I go right down the list. But it's there. Now, the concern here, Larry, is simply this. Pre-amalgamation, everyone was saying this is going to kill the suburbs, you're going to lose your identity, yada, 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 yada. It's 17 years into the game right now. Please show me where that's happened. Okay. So So, so, that was fear of the unknown. Now we've got a track record, and I see these councillors coming up with the same arguments that they did back in the late 1990s that it's going to kill rural areas. I don't see that.
1: Well, so uh, several points there, Bill. One, there were a number of concerns that the area municipalities had, probably three. The first one was uh, a forced amalgamation. We wanted to have some sort of political expression uh, by the the, uh, general public through a plebiscite or, or a vote of some sort, uh, to go into this union. That was one. The second was around the local identities, the historic identities. Stony Creek wanted to be Stony Creek. Dundas wanted to have its identity and, and other other parts of the community as well. And the third, I would say, is the tax dollars. Uh, and, and uh, you know, what would happen? Who would pay for what? And, and, and would uh, the suburbs that had... Uh, a lower level of service in some cases have to pay for the higher order services that Hamilton enjoyed in a number of areas. And so the, those three concerns were I think, addressed by the way that the structure was put together. Um, and uh, and uh, we can safely say, look, we just attended the Winona Peach Festival uh, this weekend, which was highly successful. People there from all over the place uh, in the municipality, I saw people from Dundas, Flamborough, and, and beyond, who were enjoying this. And this is Winona, part of Stony Creek, and and the identity is there. I attended the Dundas Cactus Festival. The identity is there. And I would say that that, that has maintained and will be maintained. Uh, so so that, is, that concern has been set aside. But the issue around tax dollars has not been resolved yet. And and uh, the higher level of services uh, that some of the debate uh, around this ward boundary uh, issue, um, especially around HSR uh, services, the, the, the principle that we went into this amalgamation with, with was: if you don't get a service, you don't pay for a service. Also known as area rating, right? And people have argued against that, and they've said, "No, HSR should be paid for by everybody, and then service uh, will increase." And 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 that you know that's an argument and a debate that's worthy of having but it will have dramatic impact just to cite one example on how we are taxed in the municipality and that is part of the ward boundary review also the issue of uh, of uh, ward size you know the province of ontario is just proposing is looking at a proposal to uh, to to add two ridings one in a largely francophone area one in a largely indigenous uh, indigenous area with smaller population that will look after the community of interest represented by those two areas. Canada is replete with examples of how population is not the only driver of, of political structure and representative structure. Hamilton is no different. When you want to eliminate the rural area and Council Pursuda's ward entirely, as one of the proposals suggests, you're doing away with an important aspect of the community. And that is not fair to the rural community at all, who deserves to have a voice at the table.
0: But there you go again with the assertion that, well, you know what, if you don't do that, then nobody's going to have any idea about how a rural municipalities should be governed. And that's just not true. You know that's not true. And it, if you use that kind of rationale, Larry, then Councillor Pursuit and Councillor Partridge shouldn't be voting on urban issues because they don't have that sense of, of living in a city and in an inner city. At some point, you've got to go back to your initial point and simply say you get elected to govern the whole city. And, and stop being parochial about this. I mean, they're stirring the pot, and they're revving up the same fears that we had here 20 years ago. And that's not going to bring this city together. This, You know, a couple of things that we have to determine. First and foremost, nobody's going to de-amalgamate, all right? That's not happening. No government's going to go into Queen's Park and say, okay, we're going to split this whole thing up. Not going to happen in our lifetime. The only way we're going to make this work is if we stop this fear-mongering, and that's exactly what's going on here.
1: Well, so... <laughs> Uh, you, you know, I, I do agree with you that that people can have uh, uh, can have a, a mind and an interest in rural issues, um, uh, even though they they may represent an urban setting. And I would hope that the other uh, way is true as well. If you represent a rural setting, you can also pay attention to to the urban uh, issues as well. However, it's not a question of of people's intelligence sensitivities. And uh, and demeanor when they're around the council table, it's also a question of signaling to the community that this part of the community is, is also important, and it was felt it was important enough by the by the decision makers of the day to to have a a, a representative from those areas around the council table. That is not a bad thing, Bill. It doesn't stoke fears uh, to say you know our voice counts as well. In fact, just the opposite of it is true. The moment that you wipe that away, the moment that you give a short shrift, you are exacerbating fears that may not be existing today as strongly as they did 20 years ago when we amalgamated.
0: But, but again, I, I find it more than ironic, by the way, that Councillor Partridge, who's uh, you know leading the cause here, and, and she says she's not trying to stir fear. She says she just wants to get people engaged. We can talk about that in a second. But she's running in a, in a provincial riding in the next uh, provincial election that was newly created by ward division because of population. Uh, I mean, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. You either agree with the process or you don't. And Councillor Persuda, if in fact this is going to be imposed upon them, is more than welcome to run in the newly created riding and, and, and well, let democra- the, the democratic process handle itself and see what's going to happen there. Uh, I mean, to suggest that there'll be no voice is based on the fact, and I've heard this back in in pre-amalgamation times, I've heard it since amalgamation, Larry. Is there's this assertion by a number of councillors, some of it stated, some of it you know, is is implied, is that if there's an imbalance, if there's more inner city councillors than, than rural councillors, then they're going to get screwed. And and I just don't see that. I don't see that happening. I see a number of inner city councillors that are very very adept at, at dealing with rural issues and vice versa. Uh, but so so where's the basis for that kind of concern? Well, there's a historical basis,
1: as as we've just said, and and also a real basis in terms of decisions around resources and tax dollars that, that are spent. And there's this yin and yang right now. And and, you, and your your, your point
0: your pointable transit is well noted, and, and that's true. But whose fault is that that 17 years into this it hasn't been solved? That's city council.
1: Well, absolutely, and council is doing um, its best to, to, to allocate dollars as wisely as, as possible. But to, but to give short shrift to different parts of the community or to say we're going to impose a tax, in a community that is never going to receive a benefit from those tax dollars that are spent is patently unfair.
0: And you maybe have heard one or two councillors that have echoed that sentiment, but it's not a majority opinion, so why is the concern that it might be? I mean, if you're to use that tact, then any anything could happen by anybody, I mean, as far as that's concerned, and it just, it just doesn't make sense. I don't see the basis for reality in, in those sorts of comments.
1: Well, the reality reality plays itself out every year when council has to decide on budgetary issues and what is allocated where. And I remember lots of times when people complained about having more needs than dollars, and that's always the case. But when you don't have somebody at the table advocating for a particular perspective, uh, when dollars are allocated, uh, you're going to miss that point of view. And so structurally, that's important to, to recognize, but also, it's the kind of message that we're giving as a city. If, if we are truly a city, we have to represent all those various points of view. Put them together around a table with everybody feeling that they, they have a stake in all decisions that are made. That's extremely important as well. But not to even have the opportunity or to give even the opportunity of someone to be representing an area that if you strictly go by population, is totally wiped out from the equation, I think you're going to create more problems than you're solving. In fact, this whole exercise can be said to be a solution looking for a problem. Right now things are working well, and I'm not suggesting status quo. I'm not suggesting that council shouldn't uh, have looked at um, and revised the ward boundary structure that was put in place so many years ago. That is long overdue, and I'm glad that they're doing it. But to suggest that we strictly go by population, and have an equal number representing every part of the city uh, does a lot of damage to as i said the historic fabric of our community as well as the implications to how tax dollars
0: are allocated. Here's the uh, We've only got a minute left here. Yeah. I, and, and if there's an argument to be made that, okay, fine, leave the two flamber areas basically the way they are, I can see that. But I, I don't have a, a, a concern about that. But what I do have a concern is when you look at the population growth in the inner city right now, and you've got some wards with 17,000 people and one representative, another with 64,000 people and one, that is an inequity. And, and that's got to be resolved. But, and but, I don't see anybody stepping bill, forward to bill, do that.
1: Bill. Canada is born on those kinds of anomalies. How do you explain a province like uh, Prince Edward Island with 143,000 residents in the entire uh, province having three uh, levels of government? Uh, the, the federal representatives, municipal, uh, provincial representatives, as well as all the municipal representatives in that province. It acknowledges the uniqueness of that particular part of the world in Canada as our city it was made up. It was I mean, it was a formed amalgamation where you take all these component parts and you put them together and you weave the entire fabric. And I think we're making good headway in many, many ways. Uh, look at the LRT example uh, is one example. Look at all the suburban councillors who supported that uh, initiative. Uh, and 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 I think we're making headway, but to, to re-stimulate now a divisive topic that has some real implications uh, is, I think, taking a step backward. Uh,
0: lots more to talk about this in the days ahead. It's not until October that they do the OMB hearing. Larry, thanks as always for the time. Good to have you with us today. My pleasure. Former Hamilton Mayor Larry DeAnne weighing in on uh, what could be happening with uh, the OMB hearing uh, with Ward Boundaries. We're going to continue this later on in the week. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
2: on AM 900 CHML.
0: Like others, of course, we were watching the uh, horrific pictures of what's been going on in South Texas over the last number of days. Hurricane Harvey has hit uh, the Houston area, Corpus Christi, of course, where it made landfall a couple of days ago, causing thousands to flee their homes and massive flooding, of course, to pour in in the fourth largest city in the United States. To get an idea about the damage and uh, the ramifications, we are pleased to welcome to the program Jacqueline Whittle, who is a meteorologist and storm chaser, in fact, uh, for the Weather Network. And she, of course, is down in the Houston area. Jacqueline, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us this morning yeah thanks for having me let's uh, maybe just uh, to set the scene here well uh, we've been watching your reports on the weather network through the course of the weekend as you've watched you've You've seen hurricanes, you've seen tornadoes i mean in, in your work with the with the weather network right now, C- compare and contrast what you've seen in Houston with the, some of the other things that you've seen as as you have gone around North America and the world really looking at weather events like this.
3: Well, you know, to be to be honest, I've never seen anything like this. Uh, I I was uh, I was about a half a mile wide from the largest tornado widest tornado ever recorded in U.S. history. Uh, I was a part of a very big flooding event a couple of years ago in South Carolina. Um, you know, I, I've done very intense nor'easters and in winter weather. I've never seen anything like this. To be honest, uh, this this hurricane um, you know made landfall as a Category Four, which of course broke the twelve-year uh, you know, U.S. landfall drought. We always knew that it would only take one to do this kind of devastation. And sure enough, that broke that, uh, you know, 12-year gap. And so that's one part of the story. But it made landfall as a Category 4 storm and didn't move. For 12 hours, it maintained that strength. It finally started to dissipate. Uh, we were with it every step of the way. And then it still is a tropical storm and still contains uh, a lot of moisture, still some wind, and maybe even could go over the Gulf of Mexico again and make a second landfall as a potential tropical storm. So um, that being very unique to itself, the stalling nature of the storm, and then of course, the just unbelievable amount of rainfall uh, upwards to thirty five inches or you know a meter of rainfall here in Houston, which is just uh, being referred to as Houston's Katrina event. So just astounding.
0: The, the the damage from these things, as, as you were talking about uh, pre uh, landfall, uh, is obviously been to concern about the wind initially when it does make landfall like this, and, and there was an enough a lot of damage that was done, but it's the it's the rain, it's the wind, and any any fatalities that are usually caused by hurricanes, as uh, we found out historically, Jacqueline, it's usually the water, it's people drowning, it's it's that at, at impact, and not so much the the, the 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 huge winds, which also by the way were a major factor as it hit landfall.
3: Yeah, you bet. They were, um, you know, gusting over 200 kilometers an hour. Uh, actually, pardon me, sustained over 200 kilometers an hour, gusting beyond that. You're right. It is the water that is the number one killer when it comes to a hurricane, and that's usually because of storm surge. Um, storm surge is basically the winds around the circulation of the hurricane um, piling up the water along the coastal region. So when that, you know, hurricane, whether it's a Cat One, Two, Three, Four or five really uh that's you know one part of it being the winds but it's that strength of the hurricane that piles that water up and you get this wall of water that just takes over the coastal areas and often um can can take many lives just based on storm surge i mean that's what we saw in katrina and what that did was it um you know filled up those levees so quickly and of course the levees failed and that's what uh, katrina's story was what was different about this was Yeah, surge was a factor, but we didn't really hear. I think we heard of one fatality when when landfall happened. Uh, We're up to, I think, at least five right now, and most of that has been due to flooding. Uh, Flash flooding is the number one killer in the United States over hurricanes and tornadoes. Uh, It's kind of shocking when you think of that, but that is the truth. And um, it's the rain that this one will be remembered by, and it's relentless. We still have um, an additional 15 to 25 inches of rain where we're stationed in Houston, so a lot more where this came from.
0: It's a different animal, isn't it? I mean, uh, we've watched, of course, uh, you and Mark with your storm chasing uh, as you're down in, in those areas, especially in some of the southern states, of course. And I still remember the one where uh, you guys were just, I guess you got to that small town just uh, literally minutes after the uh, the, the tornado struck and, and you guys were just walking through the rubble and the devastation. Uh, but that's immediate. And, and, and to a certain extent, you can kind of predict that, okay, it's the season and these things could develop. But uh, but it it comes at you in no time. This everybody had a lot of time. You knew this was happening. They had days to plan. Uh, do they t- do they take it seriously? I mean, I I don't mean to be flippant about that. But you look at the number of people, Jacqueline, that stayed and did not try to get away from this right now, and and you wondered. Okay, fine. They were concerned about the hurricane. In other words, the wind but they didn't seem to be impacted or be thoughtful enough that maybe the water and the rain, the the relentless rain that they've had over the last couple of days was going to be a factor. Did it catch them off guard?
3: I think it did. Um, You know, there's a couple things that that went on with this storm. It made uh, landfall in the Yucatan Peninsula uh, in Mexico as a tropical storm. We knew that if it could get back in the Gulf of Mexico, it could intensify very quickly. So while they did have notice, it's not like we had Five to seven days of, you know, a typical tropical wave coming off the west coast of Africa crossing the Atlantic. Sometimes we're watching things like right now we're watching two systems that could uh, impact the U.S. seven days from now. We're watching it. Most of those storms usually recurve and, you know, everything's good. This came up quick because we literally only had probably a couple of days for areas like Corpus Christi and, you know, Rockport and Port Lavaca and all these coastal areas. So I think a lot of people there evacuated And I think everybody fared out pretty well from the storm. Obviously a lot of damage, but everybody did okay that way. It's when it then went into Houston that it happened um, fast. We got, you know, 400 millimeters of rain just in one day yesterday. And the day before, we also got an abundance of rain. The problem is there's 6 million people that live in Houston. And to all of a sudden say, okay, uh, we better evacuate. Well, by this point, major highways are already closed because of the rapid rainfall that fell so now you're asking six million people to get on the roads and all the roads are closed so where do they go that could be a a catastrophe too so um you know a lot of a lot of criticism a lot of praise depends on which way you want to look at it for what the right decision was for the mayor for the governor um here in texas because you know it's a a tricky one it happened so fast with this rainfall in, in houston
0: we can't really relate to this. I mean, you know, even up in Ancaster, I mean, we'll get flooding from time to time. We get an inch or two of water, and you think, oh, my goodness, this is terrible. Uh, and some basements can be flooded, of course, when, when sewers back up. But to see the streets of Houston, and you know, the, the, you've shown some of this on the Weather Network, the before and after pictures of, of what Houston looked like a week ago and what it looks like this morning, it's its mind-boggling, isn't
3: it? It's totally mind-boggling. And by the way, you mentioned Ancaster. That's actually where I live. And, um, you know, you're right. We can't get our heads around this. I I said on on TV this morning when I was doing live television with Weather Network, imagine basically, you know, the city of Toronto or the city of Hamilton or, or the entire GTA, for that matter. Imagine them saying, "Okay, you can't go out on any roads. I don't mean just one section of the QEW or one section of the 401, any major highways. You can't get out there. You have to stay in your home. And in some of these areas that are really close to the rising water along what's called the Buffalo Bayou, um, if you're there, we don't want you to go in your attic. We want you to go on top of your roof if you need to be rescued. This is the kind of dialogue that we're hearing down there. We we can't imagine what that would be like uh, to happen in the GTA. I, I just it's really you know I think we relate and maybe more on a winter storm mm-hmm. level when we when we see major road closures in our area, and we can certainly get our head around that. But yeah, it's it's very very different and. They are taking it seriously. To, to, to answer your question earlier, you said, you know, you know, I, I know when I'm in the, the central plains sometimes chasing tornadoes, there are so many tornado warnings all the time that people sometimes don't take them seriously. And, you know, it's like, oh, no, the river always stops it or, you know, it goes around my town every time. And that always frustrates me because I well, Mother Nature has no rules, so you should take shelter. But here they are taking this very seriously. Uh, people are really coming together. You see the a really beautiful side of people um, here in our hotel where we're staying. Um, you know, we're running out of food. Uh, there's a lot of people taking shelter in the hotel I'm in in Houston. And the hotel is just doing such a fantastic job trying to make sure that not only people just have shelter, but, you know, that we've got enough food and water to, to get to everybody here. I saw someone in the, um, the store, there's a little store here in the hotel, literally take a phone charger right off the shelf and said, just take it to this one girl who had been rescued by boat an hour before. She had to get in touch with her father, who she didn't even know where he was. That kind of stuff really shows um, the strength and, you know, the uh, just the, the be- yeah. beautiful side of people in an event like this.
0: How does, how does a city like Houston, well, they can't plan for this, obviously, because, as you say, uh, this is relentless what's happening right now, but how do they cope with this? Is there an emergency plan? I mean, you've shown us the pictures uh, through the weekend on your reports that uh, you know, basically people in, in, in motorboats, I mean, uh, just going, as you say, almost from house to house, trying to get people off the roofs of their houses right now. Uh, is is there a, a a coordinated plan here to go into different neighborhoods that are affected by this and try to find people that are in need of help?
2: You
3: know, I really, I couldn't speak to that. I don't know, uh, I couldn't speak to an actual plan that's in place, but what I can tell you is that the National Guard is here, um, The the Red Cross is here. There's a lot of aid. Um, there's other rescue workers that have come over from Louisiana that did a lot of work in Katrina, um, and, and everybody's just kind of coming together um, and, and doing what they can. There's plenty of shelters, so there's a lot of supplies coming in from out of state in some of these shelters, if they can get in, That that is. Mm. Um, some highways are still passable, but there's a lot of ramps that are closed, and yeah, I mean, there, there are highways that are operating. Like, surprisingly, yesterday it was like, oh, this one's open, but you don't know how far you can get. You don't want to get caught. And the problem with flash flooding, and especially now that everything is so swollen, um, the reservoirs, the, the tributaries and basins and, and this main throughway, as I mentioned, the Buffalo Bayou, that's an important uh, channel of water that goes right through Houston. The problem is is that they're all way over uh, flood stage or getting to flood stage, major flood stage. If, if the rain keeps going, you know, they, you can all of a sudden think, oh, this highway's good. I can get out or I can head west here or that. But the fact is is it can change very quickly if that water rises over the banks and all of a sudden floods. So that's how we lose life. That's how we have a, a disaster unfolding because you don't know where the water will go next.
0: What's the forecast? What's, uh, what's the status right now as, uh, as you sit there in Houston?
3: Another 25 inches of rain is possible, um, and we've already seen 35 inches. So, you know, a meter to a meter and a half by the time uh, this whole event is done. So, just unbelievable. Probably go down as the the worst U.S. flood in, in history of the U.S.
0: You know, but the, the, as we watch you know, you the reporting here, any kind of a weather system. I mean, we're used to it here in southern Ontario. That okay, yeah, it was a miserable day today. It was a crappy day, or a blizzard, or a snow, whatever it might be, or a rainstorm. But, you know, as, as you guys talk about, highs and low pressures and, and, you know, isobars and things moving, why is this thing sitting still the way it is for so long? That just seems rather abnormal.
3: It is abnormal. A lot of uh, forecasters don't have uh, any sort of, you know, precedented event that they could recall on. So oh, this was just like tropical storm whoever. This is very unique. Um, you, you mentioned the highs and the lows. If you think of the tropical cyclone as an area of low pressure, counterclockwise flow, Uh, That's the the tropical cyclone. Then you've got two areas of high pressure on either side of it, which has the opposite flow. Um, Basically, those areas of high pressure have kind of trapped it in this area. So we're looking for upper level winds, uh, the jet stream, if you will, to take the storm and kick it out of the way. And usually that's what happens. Um, You know, we get a lot of rain in a hurricane. Yeah, no question, but they don't generally stall like this. And Harvey actually has the potential to not only just stall and it continued to stall, but maybe even go back over the Gulf of Mexico and possibly re-intensify. I don't think it's going to re-intensify much beyond a tropical storm because what ended up happening, um, to talk about the, the meteorology a little bit, is when you've got a Cat Four, a really really strong hurricane over the Gulf, it churns up the water. So it, you're looking for to get a developing hurricane or a strengthening hurricane, you want warm water temperatures, but the problem is when you get those strong winds over the water for a sustained amount of time, it draws up the colder water from below. It's called upwelling. So because that cold water is brought up to the surface along the immediate coast, we've now lost a lot of our heating from the Gulf. That's good news because that will hinder uh, the chances of Harvey becoming much more than maybe a tropical storm or Cat 1 when it goes back over uh, the Gulf. So, uh, but either way, it might, it might kind of zigzag back over the Gulf, make another landfall, and still just pump in more moisture. And could it be Louisiana's turn at that time?
0: I was going to ask you, uh, can, you, can you actually track a direction like that, Jack, and, and suggest if it does go back over the Gulf, uh, can you find out exactly where it might go? It's, it's very unpredictable as, as we watch some of these developing storms over the oceans and in the Gulf uh, as to exactly where they're going to go. Uh, but there's a possibility that this, this, this particular storm, that whether it's a tropical storm or, uh, as you mentioned, probably not up to hurricane strength, but it could actually have another devastating effect on another part of the Gulf.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it, let's hope that it doesn't continue uh, over Houston um, beyond, say, the next few days. But, yeah, it might be western Louisiana's turn um, for a lot of heavy rainfall and maybe some wind as well. Uh, but, you know, they haven't had a lot, so they can handle some more, but this area can't.
0: How long does it take, uh, and maybe you can go back to the experience of Katrina uh, some years ago now, uh, for a city like this? I mean, the water is, is is so high right now. As you say, some houses are covered. Uh, there are just some rooftops that we can see right now. Uh, first of all, I guess it has to stop raining, but uh, for the water to actually dissipate, and and to start uh, efforts to to try to rebuild, it seems as if it's going to be a while before they can even get to that stage.
3: Oh, I I agree. It's just, it's really kind of scary. I, I mean, I could see this taking years actually to to fix this completely. Uh, the reason I think that is that um, well, this is an unprecedented event. They've never seen this amount of rain. Number one, number two, uh, Houston is is notorious for flooding. I spoke to many locals, and uh, this one couple that I spoke to. Lives in a beautiful subdivision, uh, kind of like 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 Ancaster, if you will. If you imagine mm-hmm. like a crescent in Ancaster, and and they um, they flood every time it, there's a thunderstorm. And the reason that they flood, well, there's been all kinds of suggested reasons that they had a, a booming population in the late '90s and into the 2000s. And you know, is it possible the city wasn't designed properly to channel the water away and extra concrete, so on and so forth? I'm not I'm not going to speak to that because I don't know exactly why, but I've heard that. But these people say that they flood all the time. And I heard him say, you know, at this point, he might just sell his property for the property value. And this is a beautiful home on this property. Uh, But he's sick and tired of it. And so, you know, he floods on a normal thunderstorm day. and, And so now with all this water, it's going to take a long time to get all this water out of here and then, of course, to rebuild. But where he lives is right along that Buffalo Bayou that I keep mentioning. And why that's important is we've got two major reservoirs in the city of Houston. One is called the Attic Reservoir, and the other one's called the Baker's Reservoir, and they're positioned really close uh, to each other, and it's actually where our hotel is. And so that collects thunderstorm rain, tropical rain, any moisture in this area. Then they, it's a dam, so basically they release certain amounts of water throughout the month, or, you know, the year, mm-hmm. through this other um sort of streamway that snakes through the city known as the Buffalo Bayou. The Buffalo Bayou then channels it all out to the Gulf of Mexico. Well, the Buffalo Bayou is at moderate flood stage right now um, at 28 feet. It's expected to crest that major flood stage today at 32 feet. Now let's go back to the reservoirs. They're also overshooting their banks. So even if they wanted to let out some controlled amounts of water, they're now compromising everybody upstream along the Buffalo Bayou. So this is going to take a long time to, I think, to get the water out, make sure this never happens again. I imagine a lot of the infrastructure has got to be affected by this amount of water. Oh, sure. Uh, the Buffalo Bayou is 100 feet deep by 80 feet wide. It's at 97 feet. And, you know, so it's it's just incredible. I I, I, I don't know if I'll ever see something like this again in terms of a hurricane. I sure hope I don't.
0: Well, Again, I go back to the Ancaster example. I mean, we've got those stormwater retention ponds out in the meadowlands in Ancaster, and I'm always amazed after heavy rainfall to see those flooded, but to see an entire city that seems to be on a floodplain, well, we've seen the impact. And uh, your descriptions and uh, and the pictures you brought to us over the last number of days have uh, just been remarkable and and uh, stuff that we're never going to forget. Jacqueline, you got to run. Uh, we're just about out of time, too. Uh, thanks so much for the great reporting, and thanks for spending some time with us today. Greatly appreciate it.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much as well.
0: Take care now, and uh, stay safe. Jacqueline Whittle, meteorologist and storm chaser, of course, for the Weather Network. She's down in Houston as uh, Harvey continues to pelt that area, and we'll keep our eyes uh, glued to what's happening down there and keep you posted with any further developments.
2: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
0: Well, uh, Donald Trump has been tweeting again. Uh, When he gets the thumbs going, people seem to be paying attention to it. Uh, This time it's about the NAFTA deal, uh, saying that Mexico and Canada are both being very difficult and we may have to terminate. Not the first time he said that. Of course, that was part of the rant that he had at the rally uh, in Arizona uh, earlier last week. So what kind of an impact does it have? Well, some uh, politicians on this side of the border have uh, responded to tweets from Trump uh, in the last little while. Tim Harper writes about a freelance writer and editor. His uh, piece appears in the Toronto Star today. And Tim Harper appears right here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900CHML. Morning, Tim. How are you doing today?
2: I'm very good, Bill. Good morning to
0: you. Uh, Great piece uh, today. Uh, (laughs) uh, You write that the Trump tweets uh, is the cyber equivalent of a boss walking past the negotiating room, banging on a frying pan with a hammer and squeezing an air horn. Uh, You can't ignore it, can you, Tim? Or can you?
2: Well, here's the problem. You have to. Uh, if you're uh, negotiating right now for Canada because um, otherwise it, it's, a, it's a distraction and uh, it's a pressure tactic and maybe that's exactly what uh, he wants. But, you know, when you're in the room, and I remind you and the listeners, these talks have just begun, um, I think you just have to tune that out. And uh, I know he's, he's the president, he's got the biggest bully pulpit in the world, and he certainly uses it, but I think you do have to uh, ignore
0: it. But you make a valid point that I don't hear too many people talking about here. This is not the first time that Trump has threatened to uh, tear up the deal or walk away or terminate NAFTA, uh, whatever wording he wants to use on this. Uh, even if he made that decision, easier said than done, isn't it?
2: Well, it's typical of him. It's a, sort of a, a bombastic uh, kind of threat, but he he alone cannot do this, and I think that's worth noting. Uh, he can... Trigger. Uh, he does have the the power to give notice or to trigger a clause uh, that means the U.S. will be out in six months. Uh, but that during those six months, the talks on renegotiation can continue, uh, and he can rescind his uh, his order at any time if if the talks are going well or if he's getting what he wants. There's also the question as to whether Congress would allow him to do this because. Uh, ultimately, this is a congressional uh, decision in the U.S., and there is uh, a law that was put on the books, I believe, in 1993 bill that actually enshrines NAFTA as a piece of legislation uh, as opposed to a, a standalone treaty. And you could have Congress uh, saying, well, this supersedes any presidential order. It's all, it's all very murky, but it's not as simple as saying, uh, I, that's it, I'm gone, we're out of it. Um, there are a, a number of uh, shoals he has to navigate before you get to that point. Uh, the Canadian negotiators are, are well aware of this, and it's this another reason why I think you just have to tune this bombast out.
0: The other element to this, too, is uh, we don't hear a whole lot, nor do we talk a whole lot on this side of the border, about uh, the reaction that his NAFTA discussions and his NAFTA comments are getting in the states themselves. Uh, what's the number? I think it's about 38 or 39 of the 50 states, Tim, uh, rely heavily on, on trade with Mexico and mm-hmm. Canada for their economies.
2: And we have to keep in mind I have to give the Trudeau government a lot of credit. While obviously they have uh, courted Trump in the White House before the the NAFTA renegotiations, they did a heck of a lot of work dealing with um, American governors. You'll recall that uh, Trudeau made a very well-received speech at a governor's uh, Mm -hmm. uh, council. They have courted uh, mayors and, in fact, have the support of mayors in Texas. Um, They have um, courted business uh they've courted unions they have done a massive outreach program in the u.s um to try to remind americans how much their um wherewithal their their well-being depends on this deal too so you know while not ignoring uh the white house because you can't do that uh they certainly have the, the the canadian negotiating team and the canadian cabinet and the prime minister have certainly not simply uh doubt uh, with Trump exclusively. They have fanned out and they have done a very good job building support and awareness in the U.S. Uh, at other political levels.
0: The other element to this as well is uh, is the federal government, so, as particularly here. Uh, as you say, they just kind of smile and nod anytime anybody asks them about Trump's latest tirade, uh, whether it's uh, this one or the one from the other day. Uh, they don't want to get sucked into this.
2: No, Christopher Elon's, uh spokesperson has got, he's, he's got his finger on the uh, uh, on the button to send the, the same email response out every time trump does this as, as you as you pointed out he he, he went after nafta in the uh, the arizona rally and uh, and again yesterday morning I, I think what caused uh... attention here was the first time i think he typed in the word canada but i, I also think we should be aware that his um, his tirades against nafta his rants against nafta are je- are usually targeted to mexico uh yesterday in this, uh, you know, usual Sunday morning tweet storm that we, we get used to from the president, um, the, the NAFTA deal um, uh, tweet came right after another uh, another claim that he's going to build his border wall, somehow get Mexico to pay for it. So I think the two were
0: intertwined. Uh, and that, that kind of response, uh, and again, I guess we have to put this in context as well. And, uh, you know, our, our, our negotiating team, that, that being the Canadian negotiating team, uh, th- th- these are people that are known to, to Lighthizer and others uh, sitting across the table from them. I mean, Christia Freeland had a, a reputation uh, in, in commerce long before she got into politics. I don't get the impression that she's going to get swayed or impacted by these sorts of comments.
2: No, but, you know, let's let's be honest. These are going to be tough talks. Um, you know, a dispute settlement mechanism uh, is, is vital to this country and, and Mexico, and, you know, that could be a deal-breaker. We don't really know. Uh, how much of the U.S. position is just, um, and I'm not talking about the president here, but uh, the the trade uh, rep, Lighthizer. I, I don't know how much this can be uh, written off as pre-negotiating uh, rhetoric, and how much is actually being uh, put on the table behind closed doors. Uh, I don't think anybody's sure of that, because and they've also, you know, I think smartly put a communications blackout on on actually day-to-day talks. So. You know, at some point, Canada may have to walk away. I mean, that's a real possibility. We can we can ignore the bluster for now, but the bluster uh, is, is detached from what's actually going on at that table, and there may be a point where Canada has to walk away. And, you know, we, we obviously have to have a plan B. A plan B would be um, trading uh, with the U.S. without uh, the uh, the umbrella of NAFTA.
0: Is that inevitable? Because uh, I'm hearing that from more and more economists uh, th- as we uh, talk about. And it, it's interesting that that it seems to be a topic of conversation because they've really, only really had one round of negotiations. I mean, they get they get back together again this weekend, Labor Day weekend, uh, coincidentally, uh, to begin another round. But I get the sense from an awful lot of observers that at some point Canada probably is going to get up off the, from the table and just say enough's enough. And I don't think that'll end the talks, but it's certainly going to send some shockwaves around.
2: Well, it happened in the original talks. Yeah. If you recall, Simon Reisman got up and walked out. And, and you know, as it turns out it wasn't negotiating ploy, although the um, uh, the issues were real, and they did get a deal. So, uh, look, I I would not be surprised if somebody gets up and walks away at some point between now and when they want to have this uh, wrapped up by uh, uh, the, before the Mexican uh, round of elections in 2018. By the way, it's a very tight. Uh, time frame too which which I, do, I don't think is helpful but you know that kind of stuff uh i think canadians are uh, uh the canadian negotiating team is prepared to have that kind of uh drama happen uh it happened under uh, a much more um rational u.s administration uh, initially so there's there's probably reason to think this will happen but i don't think that's necessarily going to kill the the deal i think there's still there's still an awareness in the United States that this deal is, is, is a good deal for the U.S. Um, and, and, you know, the, the problem is with Mexico, and I think the Canadians are seen as a, as a, a good, steady, rational, uh, reliable trade uh, partner. So we're going to see some drama. We're going to see some fireworks. You, you, can, you can be guaranteed of that.
0: The, uh, the, the problem right now, of course, is, is the wish list that each country has at this stage. And, uh, and maybe the fact that there is nothing coming out of, of uh, the, the pr- main principles involved in this negotiation. All we're really hearing is Trump's uh, rhetoric on the other side of it right now. And you, you, I guess, really have to wonder just how much of influence it is having. Is, it, is he reflecting what's actually going on at the table? Is he reflecting the, uh, the wish list that Lighthizer and others have around the table as far as the Americans are concerned? We, we really don't know yet.
2: You know, I, it's weird, though. Uh, one, one of the things about Trump that perplexed me among a, a very long list, I, what I think he's doing, really, Bill, is he's, he's just continuing to campaign. He keeps coming back to the same uh, campaign lines about the wall and the bad trade deal and, you know, promoting the, uh, the, the sheriff in Milwaukee who, uh, you know, has a... The view on how uh, we should clean up our streets. These are all campaign themes. The guys never apparently stopped campaigning and and sat down and realized he's the president. Now you got you can stop campaigning. He was tweeting yesterday, uh, right? Of you know I'm going to go to Houston because of the, uh, the the tropical storm there on Tuesday, and but also I'm going to Missouri where I won in 2016. He, he just keeps campaigning, and these are campaign themes, and campaign themes have to end uh, when you get in the Oval Office. Uh, but he uh, he feeds off campaign rallies and these um, bumper sticker-style uh, tweets that he puts out that he put out so successfully during the campaign, and he's the eternal campaigner. He's, he, he's, he hasn't stopped and took a, taken a breath to realize he's the president.
0: Well, and he's certainly playing to his base. I mean, you know, the Perfect. approval ratings being what they are, they're, they're dramatically low, historically low, I guess. But uh, but that solid base that uh, that attend those rallies and wear those hats, I mean, they're, they're with them no matter what.
2: Yeah, I, there, there is another thing at play, though, here. I, I don't know whether he feels tethered to uh, Republican policy in any way, shape, or form when it comes to trade, but... Uh, or the business community there. He, you know, he, he had the big blow-up with his manufacturing council. They all resigned before, he, uh, after the uh, Charlottesville um, debacle. Um, he may, he's, he's rather untethered. He's rather free-floating at this point. And um, that, you know, besides the bluster, that might give um, a little bit of pause to Canadian negotiators. That You know, he probably has no compunction about towing any kind of party line when it comes to uh, free trading, uh, because Republicans are uh, free traders. But he's getting pushback. He's getting pushback from uh, Mitch McConnell, the, uh, his, his favorite uh, uh, bully uh, target of, of late, who had some things to say about trade and the need for free trade over the weekend. So while he's untethered, uh, it appears to me that there are Republicans who would uh, muscle up and try to take him on if he tried to uh, kill this deal.
0: Well, I'm, not, I'm sure he's not going to be swayed too much by what Mitch McConnell says on social media, but he might be because of Pamela Mayor Fred Eisenberger, though, Tim. <laughs> 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 yeah. That that could have been a deal-breaker right there. Uh, you, yeah, and you talked about that in the piece today. Uh, uh, the mayor, of course, and, and, and Charlie Angus, who's uh, running for the leadership, or it was anyway, for the MP, uh, NDP, uh, federally both tweeted about that. Uh, so so we're hearing some voices in response. What do you think about that?
2: Oh, I think uh, your mayor probably gave voice to uh, what uh, many, many Canadians were thinking, although um, I, d- I hope he felt better after he tweeted that because <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's going to have any impact, but good on him. Sometimes I guess you have to say what's on your mind, uh, but... Uh, I'm watching. I haven't seen any Trump tweets uh, about Fred Eisenberger yet, but you know, uh, let's wait. Maybe, maybe he's going to go after him next. I week. wait for the
0: rally in Missouri. Like I, a- the, the mayor's tweet uh, for those that didn't see it on Twitter uh, says, "The only thing that needs to be terminated is your presidency. Save yourself and your country. Resign, and you will be popular everywhere." Uh, that's from uh, at Fred Eisenberger to uh, to Donald Trump. Charlie Angus was, uh, as you mentioned, a little more literary about it, though. I mean, he could, uh, drawing on the Bard, I guess, for well, paraphrasing him anyway.
2: Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, Charlie uh, moderated his position later in the day. There was an NDP leadership debate, and then he was back to, uh, you know, ignore this. We need a, a government that stays focused. But uh, in the heat of the moment, sure, Charlie uh, Charlie got rather lyrical. Um, you know, this, this really at the uh, end of the day doesn't mean anything. And You know, I, regardless of how many millions of um, Twitter followers uh, the president has, you know, I, I do sense one thing. There there seems to be more and more of a shrug uh over some of his more outlandish uh uh tweets, unless of course he's, you know, tweeting us into a war with North Korea or he's tweeting government policy. But the the early morning rants, um, you know, they've lost their shock value.
0: Well, pretty much and, and the the interesting phenomena here and you touched on it a couple of minutes ago. Is uh, there's that base, of course, that are going to love him no matter what he does, no matter what he says, because he's their guy. But uh, the Republican Party, uh, you know, that basically, you know, put him in there. Yes, uh, there's a there's a lot of dissension there. There's a lot of people, the Mitch McConnells and others. Uh, John McCain comes to mind, but there's so many others in in, in both at the state and federal level right now that are getting a little tired of this guy's acting. You got to wonder where that's going to go.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting. He went after a guy named Jeff Flake in Arizona. Yeah. Uh, uh, up to re-election and, and i've met jeff flake and, he, and
0: he's a he's a, a very good
2: um representative uh and and
0: and a republican
2: uh, and a republican but of course he's uh he's going to be challenged by another republican and trump is going to support that woman so it'll be interesting to see whether he can um whether he can take out members who want to step up uh, against him um his treatment mccain is just beyond the pale um you know, and, and some of the chants we heard about um, John McCain last week at this Arizona rally—he he came into McCain's backyard and slammed a guy who's dying. Uh, you know, it, that kind of behavior just uh, is stunning. And you know, you got to wonder when there, when that kind of backlash turns into a wave in the Republican Party, because as we've talked before, these these people have to get reelected, and that will that will focus the attention of any politician if the, if the president becomes a millstone. Um, you have to create distance to get reelected, or you're out of a job. So I think that's what we're looking at.
0: Interesting phenomena. It's a great piece. Check it out in the Toronto Star today. Tim, thanks as always uh, for taking some time with us today. Appreciate it.
2: Not a problem. Thank you for calling, Bill.
0: Take care. Tim Harper, of course, freelance writer and editor, and you can read his stuff in the uh, Toronto Star today.
2: The
1: Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.